Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the February 25th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. This week, we bring you an interview with historian Martin Duberman from our sister show, Out FM, on Pacifica's WBAI in New York City that asks, has the gay movement failed? And we revisit my chat with the gender and sexually diverse children from the reverie documentary, Room to grow. But first, let's spill some tea. The honesty. I sort of felt like the world was upside down when I read that the Trump administration was going to initiate a global campaign to decriminalize homosexuality. So normally, (laughs) if the administration announces something like this, I would be happy and think, wow, we're moving forward and providing leadership for the world in all the right ways. And yet, because of this administration, a part of me said there's no way that there's one single positive motivation behind this. Nope. And I think that's still true. (laughs) Because apparently... It started with our ambassador to Germany, who is the highest-ranking out gay person in the administration, Richard Grinnell. I think out being the operative word right there. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but as a response to the gay men being hanged in Iran for homosexuality, the ambassador came out with a statement. says it's a wake-up call for anybody who supports basic human rights. And gave the impression that this was, he was speaking... A done deal? Yeah, like he was speaking ex-cathedra or something. But in fact... I like it when you use those fancy Latin words. Thank you. I only do it for my lawyer friends. Mm -hmm. But uh, when Trump was asked about it, he had no idea what they were talking about. And it turned out that, in fact, neither he nor Pence had been... Or Mike Pompeo. No. No, yeah, no. so this so here's my theory about that. Okay. Is that this is actually very conscious. He knew exactly what he's talking about. There is one message for our international friends mm-hmm. or trying to get back to friends, mm. you know, that we're very progressive and we're concerned about this human rights stuff, and there's another message for the base. And so the message at home is we don't know nothing about no homosexual initiative of liberation. It it does seem odd that an ambassador would um, overstep his bounds like that because he's an actual diplomat. He wasn't somebody who bought his way into the office. They didn't slap him down. No, no, they didn't slap him down. So I know the whole thing is very interesting. And so GLAAD, of course, and HRC had some things to say about this. And I'm kind of with them on this. They'd say, uh, we'd believe that the Trump administration will work to protect LGBTQ people around the world if they had not attacked LGBTQ people in the U.S. over 90 times since taking office. They counted. Actually, the number was 94. Yeah. As of this week. Well, and I know I keep harping on it, but I'll never, never forgive them for the first thing they did on Inauguration Day was remove the LGBT page from the White House yeah. and the State Department Oops, websites. Wrong never, page. No page here. Yeah. Never to be replaced. Not updated. Nothing. And HRC pointed out that we have absolutely turned a blind eye to the persecution of LGBTQ people in Chechnya, which we've talked about quite a bit. And, you know, we're sending people that are fleeing persecution in their home countries back home. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been doing that. So I don't think this is about decriminalization. Also, the thing that comes up for me, too, is the response after the Pulse nightclub attacks, which was suddenly they give a damn about our lives if it's in service to Islamophobia. Yeah. And I just feel like that's exactly what's happening here. Well, and I was reading another thing about how by covering Iran under this human rights umbrella, then the European Union would have to start 
agreeing with the United States, whereas right now it has no problem being contentious because they, right. they don't agree. But then, then you can throw this sort of, uh, you know, deodorant and, and call, oh, this is about human rights. And mm-hmm. it's not. It's not really at and all. They can, and they give some cover. Yeah, we, we've... We can't be too cynical. No, but, you know, I was sort of curious how this is reading to the base. And mm-hmm. I saw a thing on the ChristianPost.com. Ooh, you are brave. No, I did. And they were quoting Mike Pompeo at his confirmation hearing as Secretary of State. And someone asked him about this. He said, I deeply believe LGBTQ persons have every right that every other person has. And so ChristianPost.com's analysis of that, and I'm paraphrasing here, is let's not kill them, but let's not impose the sexual revolution on other cultures. So that's their position. It's like, let's just make sure they don't die, which I don't even, I don't even believe that, frankly. I'm sorry. I'm so cynical. I know. And it's hard to keep up. More cynicism. Oh, bring home. it on. Uh, Martina, 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 Martina Navratilova. An icon. She's an icon. But... Uh, I think she might have gone off the deep end. In the Sunday Times of London, she wrote an opinion piece with the subtitle, or maybe it was the title, The Rules on Trans Athletes Reward Cheats and Punish the Innocent. Well, but as I understand it, as with so many other stories about people going off the rails, it all began with a tweet. (laughs) Yes. It began with a tweet. Why am uh, I tweeting more? Where she said, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. And then Rachel McKinnon, the transgender cyclist, bit back and said maybe um, she might want to think about this. And Martina deleted the tweet and said that she would educate herself and then came back with the op-ed. And then said in the op-ed, I'm educated now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and doubled down. Right, right, right. And so an organization called Athlete Ally, which is an LGBTQ athletic organization based in New York, I believe. Who knew? Yeah. (laughs) No, I want to talk to them too. Said this really shows a false understanding of science and data. And I mean, I got to say, science and data aside, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are definitely complex issues here to talk about. I was really shocked by the language that Martina used in that op-ed. It didn't even seem to be sort of attempting to understand trans identity. It was like, man can just call himself a woman. Right, right, right. Well, and, And that was the part that astonished me, too. And of course, I'm paraphrasing that a man could call himself a woman, go play for two seasons, make a fortune, and then stop being a woman and go make babies. And I thought that's the, the sort of profound ignorance I expect from, say, people I might be related to. But not Marti- Martina. No. Who's like buds with Renee Richards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, Renee and- Richards, for all you children out there, yeah. was the first Trailblazer. transgendered woman. And this was in 1976. In professional athletics. Yes. Yeah. So that it happened in black and white. Basically. Yeah, so then it didn't then it didn't happen. I know. Yeah. Well, and the, and the thing about Renee Richards was she was playing and they said they would have to genetic test or something yeah. and she wouldn't do it and she fought them and she won. That was the yeah. important thing. And then she retired and coached Martina. What two, I, two Wimbledon wins. I did in this story. I did learn a lot. Um, and Athlete Allies' statement about it, there is some interesting information. Said, trans women athletes aren't looking to take over women's sports. They are women and want to compete in the sport they love just as any other athlete would. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But this was new to me. Trans athletes have been allowed to openly compete in the Olympics since 2003. And yet no transgender athlete has ever gone to the Olympics. Oh. And I think that's sort of a like a 
the proof is in the pudding kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, there is no evidence that trans athletes actually do have an advantage when hormone levels are taken to, right. into account. And so that is the standard, I guess, the Olympic Committee has been using since 2016 is right. hormone you, levels. Right. You don't have to have reassignment surgery. Right. <laughs> and, you know, she is, a, I do not want to diminish her reality right. of this, right. um, but she is from another generation. Right. And at her time, there was so much less understanding of what gender was. Oh, right. Well, and medically speaking, too. Medically, the, yeah. The hormone, all that stuff was yeah. in its infancy. I mean, this is one of those things I think we're afraid before we know. And yeah. the only way we're going to know is by giving it a good faith effort. You know, and I think that's what the Olympic Committee is trying no. to do. And this kind of stuff from it is surprising from Martina because Martina, it boy, is. I mean, she was accused of using hormones. She was accused yeah. of being like a man. Yeah. And you could say that like her physique was had never been seen before in women's athletics. Mm -hmm. And yet she's a woman. Yeah. You know, and so we had to expand our understanding yeah. of that because there was a sense that it was manifestly unfair that she was participating. Well, let's see how this plays out. Yeah. And finally, Jackie Shane, Aww. the trans soul singer, is gone. So I love it when art and our progressive trailblazing values collide. And this is one of those things. I just learned about Jackie Shane. Me too. <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to go out and buy the box set that was released um, that got a Grammy nomination in 2018 for Best Historical Album. And it was a compilation of her recording. She never actually did a formal studio album, but she mm. did singles and live performances. What I love about her story is that she was never in the closet. No. Never. Not she even was in Nashville not, in the 50s she lived no, as a woman. No. She left Nashville in 59 mm -hmm. to go to Toronto where she really established herself as this soul singer. She professionally identified as a man, but she personally identified as a woman from the age of 13. Mm -hmm. And so you see photographs of her. She was she was not just doing little Richard makeup. Right, she was right. like in dresses and wigs and things and just beautifully yeah. singing with style and pride. And, and she had quite a career in Canada, but apparently she came back to the States in 71 for her mother. And then and kind of fell off the music radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but, I don't know if it's because America just would not accept her or she just stopped trying. I don't know. Yeah, or maybe her style was very much from the 60s. And she said the oppression that she faced and the oppression mm. that led her to leave Nashville was definitely oppression against black people. Right. And I loved, she's so quotable. She told the uh, New York Times in 2016, I believe, mm. I never explained myself to anyone. They never explained themselves to me. That's a song lyric if I ever heard one. And um, she said, most people are planted in someone else's soil, which means they're a carbon copy. I say to them, uproot yourself. Get into your own soil. You may be surprised who you really are. Although I think Canada was probably easier to just move to then. Yeah. Because after the Vietnam War, <laughs> they That's stopped true. just throwing those doors open. Because, boy, I in 2004, I really looked into becoming a Canadian, and it is no longer easy. <laughs> yeah, no. But, so. you know, they welcome artists. And they I'm do. I'm hoping that that's yeah. sort of what happened. But you can actually go on YouTube and look up Jackie Shane. There's mm -hmm. lots of recordings of her from that anthology. But there is a video clip from a Nashville TV show from 1965 of her doing Rufus Thomas's Walking the Dog. And it's just rocking. 1965 badassness. So love you, Jackie Shane. Um, we're going to remember you. We're not going to forget you. Thank you for being you.
And if you Google, I got mine, the story of Jackie Shane, you can get the CBC link, but I could not play it. I don't know if it Oh, won't... documentary? Right, right, right. The, the documentary that the CBC did. So if, if you know a way to work around the fact that you're not in Canada, good luck. There are ways. <laughs> I'm just saying there are ways if you know where to look. Anyway, for all you clever kids out there. <clears throat> Martin Duberman is an American historian, biographer, playwright, gay rights activist, and professor at City College at New York City. He won three Lambda Literary Awards, was runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize. And recently, our friend John Riley at OutFM, our sister station at WBAI in New York, talked to him about his latest book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? Thank you, Martin Duberman, for joining us on OutFM. Can you expound on your overall theme, which is Has the Gay Movement Failed? And especially at a moment when, as you yourself acknowledge, there have been so many gains for LGBTQ rights and acceptance culturally in many institutions and in everyday life, yet you still view the gay movement as having failed. When I say that, and having given the book that title, I'm measuring where we are currently against where we were immediately after Stonewall. And the very first group that sprung up was the Gay Liberation Front and its agenda. And I begin the book by describing that outfit and what their attitudes and values were. Their perspective was very much a part of the counterculture. They were not single issue. They were very broad gauged in their agenda. They uh, were anti-imperialist. They were anti-racist. They were pro-feminist, though many of the women in GLF did not think so. Uh, and we're almost certainly right. So what's happened since? I mean, I've been active organizationally since the early 70s. I was uh, one of the founders of the Gay Academic Union, and also I was on the board, the first board of the national, well, it was then called the National Gay Task Force, which gives you some idea of the attitude of the gay men toward their, quote, sisters. But the women asserted themselves, fortunately, and the name was eventually changed. So now it's the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Anyway, as early as that, GLF and, it, and the group that immediately followed, the Gay Activists Alliance, they were supplanted quite early on, I would say by, as, you know, as early as 1973, the radical spirit of the initial liberation movement was being increasingly drained out of it. And it was being replaced by standard middle-class values and by an assimilationist goal. The standard attitude, though these words may not have been used, was, look, we're just folks. We're just like you except for this incidental matter of uh, sexual orientation. So why don't you let us in? I mean, we're really good guys and gals, and, you know, we, we deserve to be part of the mainstream since we share your lifestyle, we share your attitudes, we're equally patriotic, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me ever since then, the movement has increasingly narrowed down the national gay organizations, and particularly the human rights campaign, has become so narrow that I'm not sure it's a joke to say that they are part of the 
certainly their annual budget is well up there. But until very recently, when the two issues that they primarily worked on, gays in the military and gays and legal marriage, those missions have been accomplished, unfortunately, and they are now reevaluating. I'm told. I've never been a part of that organization. So that's a long way of saying the older I get, for whatever reasons, the more radical my attitudes seem to be. And therefore, the further I feel from the organized gay movement, the exception to that is what's happening on the local level, which I mostly just hear about because only some of it is being done in New York, but primarily groups like Song and Atlanta, Southerners on New Ground, they are an absolute replay of the GLF and they are very intersectional in their approach. Those local organizations are not only radical in their values, but they're staffed primarily by people of color, gender dissidents, and so forth. So to the extent I'm hopeful about what the gay movement might yet accomplish, that hope resides on the local level and what's going on there. You've been listening to an interview with gay left activist intellectual Martin Duberman about his 2018 book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? Martin Duberman, you spoke about the important role, and perhaps we could use the word role model, of the Gay Liberation Front, which, as you explain in the book, was a radical movement in several U.S. cities and also with a branch in London that formed um, in July 69, just a few days after the Stonewall Rebellion, and disintegrated by around 1972. The leaders of this movement had been actively involved in the militant student anti-war and feminist movements, as well as doing activism in support of the civil rights and black power movements. And you referred to GLF in in the book as calling for, quote, a fierce full-scale assault on sexual and gender norms, on imperialistic wars and capitalistic greed, and on the shameful mistreatment of racial and ethnic minorities, unquote. And later you quote GLF leader Carla J., who wrote, Quote, our struggle reflects the struggles of other revolutionary groups and of other oppressed people, such as blacks, Chicanos, American Indians, and women. And then you point out that in that quote, Carla J. was sounding an intersectional note, to use the current phrase, that the Combahee River Collective, the black lesbian feminist organization active in Boston from 1974 to 80, would reiterate in even stronger terms in its now famous collective statement a compelling insistence on the simultaneity of oppressions that refuse to rank the relative impact of discriminations based on race, class, and gender. So why don't you draw out a little bit more the ideological importance of what initially GLF, the Gay Liberation Front, and then later the Combahee River Collective and other organizations kind of developed in a more full-bodied way and what importance that has for us today in the queer freedom movement. I would say at the heart of the whole intersectional movement, as the term is currently used, is significant because despite the propaganda that blankets the country about how well the economy is doing, for example, and how we have successfully avoided war, thanks to our great leader, the truth is quite different. 
I mean, I happen to be working with some of these statistics, so I'm sure of them. And one that will represent many others is that currently 46 million Americans are part of family units that are either on or living below the poverty level. And for a family of four, the current poverty level is $24,000 a year. Lots of luck, even for a single person, let alone for a family of four. We don't get a broad sense from the media or anywhere else, at least that I'm in touch with, of how pervasive discontent, even despair, and anger are broadly and widely across the country. But people are undereducated about the issues. I don't know whether much of the blame resides with the kinds of education that they're offered in, in the primary and middle schools. I suspect a lot of it does, but it's extraordinary how little most Americans know about their own plight and where it derives from and whether Americans were generally doing better earlier on and so forth. What I think happens instead, and this I have always viewed as the centerpiece of American ideology, namely, if you fail in life or if you don't do very well, like earn, only earning 24000 a year, the fault lies in one place and one only, on yourself. This wonderful country of ours, so the national narrative goes, offers a broad range of opportunities to anybody who's willing to invest hard work and commitment. So if you find that you're not getting ahead on the job, or you can't afford to go to college, or whatever the disability, it isn't because of anything other than your own laziness and negligence. And so what happens, I think, I think we're, I don't know where it comes from, whether it's part of the ether we breathe, but I think Americans, down to a person almost, believe this overwhelmingly. And so when they don't do well in life, instead of blaming the 1%, and the people who run the country, the corporations who currently own the land again, instead of blaming them, they blame themselves. And so no radical political movement gets mobilized in order to protest the concentration of wealth. Again, there are grounds for hope, I think, because the resistance to Trump as we all know, has been profound. I want to thank our guest, Martin Duberman, noted historian and the author of the important new book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? After the break, we revisit one of my favorite stories of 2018. Reporting on the Reverie documentary put me in the room with an extraordinary group of gender and sexually diverse children. Also after the break, Martin Duberman reads from his book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? Stick around. We'll be right back. Having a ball in Harlem. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. During the 1920s and 30s in Harlem, one of the social events of the year for gays was the Hamilton Lodge Ball. But this was no ordinary ball. It was a drag ball at the Regal Rockland Palace, organized by Lodge Number 710 of the Grand United Order of Oddfellows. 
Both men and women would be cross-dressed for the night, but only because organizers got police permits in advance. The event would draw thousands, most of them black. The highlight of the night, of course, was the beauty contest, in which the fashionably dressed drag contestants would compete for the title of Queen of the Ball. A rip-roaring good time, the events were called Spectacles of Color by poet Langston Hughes. Harlem socialites and white avant-garde filled the ballroom's balconies to take it all in. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Anna Edwards. I am gay, and being gay has been certainly a very important part of my life. But I will die if I do not have clean air to breathe. I will die if I don't have shelter. I will suffer greatly if the gap between the rich and the poor continues to widen. And I think gay people have a responsibility, like everyone else. But I do think that gay people are special in some ways. That because we exist in every color of skin, because we were raised in every type of family, that maybe we can be part of the process of uniting people to address the gravest issues that affect us all. I really have come to believe that the greatest divide and the most destructive divide between us is not sexual orientation or gender or even race. It's class. It's about money and power and the new economy that we're living in. I want to do whatever I can to help build power for working class people, gay and straight and black and brown and young and old. We need to help all working class people understand that it matters who you fall in love with, it matters what color you are, but we are going to sink or swim together. Hi, I'm Cleve Jones, and you are listening to IMRU right here on KPFK 90.7 FM. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. That song coming out of break was Walkin' the Dog from the great Jackie Shane, a transgendered pioneer and Grammy-nominated soul singer who passed away last week at age 78. And now Martin Duberman reading from his book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? And we're speaking with Martin Duberman, the very accomplished historian, author, and most recently has written the the book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? And I want to go back to the question about the drastic changes we've seen in the predominant issues that are highlighted and and, uh, subject of activism over the past 50 years since the Stonewall Rebellion. In your book, you repeatedly cite examples of the failure of the dominant mainstream wing of that movement to follow the radical direction of the original upsurge of the early post-Stonewall movement. And so I'd like to ask you to read an excerpt from the book where you argue for a more transformative and inclusive reinvention of the movement. The national gay movement's recent absorption in the right to marry has focused our energy on a goal, the loving couple, the tight-knit family, that positions the movement squarely within the framework of a Norman Rockwell painting, the one already on its way to the attic. As the bridal parties continue their stampede to the altar, they seem not to have noticed that non-believers are burning down the church. 
If forced to choose, those of us on the left would probably opt for the infidels. It's no longer the case, as it was back in 1970 with the Gay Liberation Front, that the national gay movement can claim to represent any position even one inch left of center, or that it wants to be. For that matter, it's not clear whether there's a coherent left to be part of, to what extent its programmatic goals align with those of the LGBTQ movement's left wing, or whether in any case the straight left gives a damn. Many of the issues that currently define and dominate left-wing politics in general, making higher education free, raising the minimum wage, reforming the criminal justice system, reversing climate change, addressing the predations of globalization, repairing the infrastructure, taxing the wealthy, guaranteeing an annual income, are surely not central or even in most instances peripheral to the agenda of the gay movement's national organizations. Its tactics, goals, and ambitions are simply hell-bent on getting inside the machine and careful not to throw even a small wrench in the gears. The most conservative of the national gay organizations, the Human Rights Campaign, having captured the crown of legal marriage, has shifted its priorities not to a more inclusive support for the goals of the left in general, but rather to getting federal legislation passed to end all remaining forms of discrimination against gay people. That goal is indisputably worthy, and just as indisputably insular. HRC's focus remains entirely inward. Like a blinded mole, it has burrowed still deeper into the tunnel of self-protection, and the rest of the world, including the low-income gay world, be damned. Let's have a final taste of Martin Duberman and Has the Gay Movement Failed? A controversy that was more popular in the beginning of the gay movement was the controversy over what causes homosexuality. Uh, There's a section in your book that deals with this topic, and I'd like to ask you to read it. In regard to the, quote, cause of sexual orientation, the recent scientific discussion has been conflicted, repetitive, and problematic. Yet it can't be avoided, though the official gay movement has done its best to announce the subject closed. The Human Rights Campaign has issued a literal edict. Homosexuality is inborn. No element of choice is involved other than how one decides to create, from that biologically determined fact, a particular lifestyle. Younger activists seem to find the long-standing debate over etiology both boring and trivial. They apparently view scientific inquiry, which long championed a pathological view of homosexuality and made life for gay people miserable, as forever doomed to remain little more than a cunning disguise for prejudice. So... I have grappled with this over the years, and we've talked about this, that that as we 
gained more ground. We kind of lost that radical spirit right. in our community. But I also think there is something missing in this equation. Like, you know, I would agree that the idea that just deciding that sexual orientation is inborn and just leaving it at that is sort of reductive. But I think this next generation, I mean, really the next generation, mm -hmm. not just younger, but like the ones coming up right now, they're not thinking in those reductive terms. I think they're thinking in nuanced terms about this. They don't care, but in a very radical way. Right. You know? Well, they don't, seem so, they don't seem bound by by the gender binary model that we grew up with. It was either one way or the other. Or choice versus yeah, right. destiny, right. biological destiny. They really, I think, are pushing beyond those yeah. very limited ways of thinking. And I would also say that while the gay movement perhaps has mm. become overly domesticated, perhaps. Right. I think there is an LGBTQI, whatever your name is for this expanded concept of who we are that is coming up and happening now and driving policy and driving political action that is containing those right. ideas, actually. But it's moving forward, not moving back. Right. And it, it seems so positive that there's a lot more to discuss. Because when I was a kid, basically, the discussion was, don't be gay. It just means you had a pushy mother. Yeah. You know, and it yeah. became their problem. Yeah. No, <laughs> not, we not are <laughs> so beyond that now. And I would say that that is good. Well, so to illustrate and what I was just kind of musing about, excuse me, that's really obnoxious. I just said that. Well, to contrast what Professor Duberman said, let's now revisit my conversation with the sexual and gender diverse kids from the Reverie documentary, Room to Grow. You're in love with me. Who sings those are? I don't know, but it's in the game oh, movie, oh, so it doesn't it matter. This is Abby Dees, and I'm at Reverie Studios in Los Angeles talking with the cast and filmmakers of the new documentary, Room to Grow, which looks at the lives of seven LGBTQ teenagers as they look toward adulthood. Did I get the count right? Are there seven of you? Seven and then him. Seven and then him. My name is Savannah. I'm not allowed to share my last name. I come from Eagle Mountain, Utah. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm very lesbian. How old are you, Savannah? I just turned 14. Bring it in. Wait. Why was it important for you to be in this film? I want to show that being queer is normal, and it's not something that defines a person, it is just another s chapter in their story. And it it's just there to just show that you can love whoever you want. And I know people have used it before, but love is love. So my name is Harmony Ramirez. I'm from Hillsboro, Oregon. I am 20 years old. I'll be turning 21 this year. And I identify in terms of gender as trans feminine and sexuality is demisexual, asexual spectrum. Woo. For me, I joined just because I've had experiences doing like some sm small interviews before with schools. Like I was GSA president. I had to get like a gender neutral bathroom in my high school. And for me, it felt like whenever I was being asked a question, I was either being asked about what's it like being just Mexican with no relation to sexual identity or gender, and then what was it like for me to also be, at the time, a gay man, but now I'm a beautiful trans lady. So I felt like Matt and John kind of let me know that it, was, it wasn't like I didn't have to compromise one part of my identity. I feel like my entire identity was taken into account. That fullness kind of mattered. Uh, hi, I'm Kelton, and um, I'm straight, and I wear dresses. The reason why it was important for me to be in this film is because 
I want to be inspiring to other people who may not have the courage because they're scared about what might happen and how people will view you as an actual person and if they'll treat you less good than you were before. Can I just say, you're already inspiring. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Isaac, he, him pronouns, uh, come from Canby. Anybody listening, you probably just went, wait, where's Canby? <laughs> Canby, Oregon, 16, turning 17 on October, gay and male, small town guy. Um, it just, I really want some, someone like me to have a maybe easier time after seeing this documentary that kind of see, hey, you're not alone. I've been through some of the stuff, maybe not as bad as other people and not as good as other people. On some level, everybody said something about feeling a duty sort of beyond themselves. Even though you've all been going through your journey, and sometimes very painfully, does that drive you? Do you each feel like you have some responsibility beyond yourselves in your journey? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'm Aiden Elvis from London, Ontario, Canada. I'm 16 years old, and I'm as pan as they come. I love you so much. I definitely feel like it's up to not only us, but this generation and generations before us to pave a new road knowing that younger generations are gonna feel accepted and loved for who they are because being who you are and embracing who you are is one of the best things that can happen. And I've only just realized that recently because before I was so scared to be who I was because I was like, I don't know how people are gonna take it or how they're going to treat me. It's interesting you talk about fear. These are all my notes from the film and I actually wrote, Aiden is fierce. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like with a lot of us, with a lot of like the personal struggles we've been through um, before and even ones that we're going through now that we may not know about or we may not have expressed yet. um, I know that me personally, I feel, I don't want to say obligated because it sounds like a chore, but I feel a responsibility to kind of be visible of or like representation that we don't always see in the media. I feel like with a lot of trans youth that are depicted in media, they're typically white. They're very like uh, cisgender passing and they're very thin looking. I've never seen a six foot Mexican Latina, uh, you know, a plus size nature on TV. So I think it was really important to see like celebrities like Laverne Cox. She's a very confident black woman in media. She kind of paved that road. So I want to help be a part of starting the conversation of LGBT acceptance at an earlier age. Yeah, I'm totally agreeing with that. Word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with Word. Re- representation of like, hey, you can also be gay and not be super flamboyant. <laughs> yeah. I'm much more of a masculine guy, but in school I've like told a few people and like, still gay? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People are surprised to hear that I'm trans sometimes, because uh, I don't always wear makeup. I'm like six foot in heels, built like a Ford truck, you know, Ford strong. So I think it's kind of important to kind of showcase that, that difference in representation. So, do you feel then that maybe that's a lot to put on your shoulders? Do you ever feel like it's too much? I've definitely felt like this could be too much to put on my shoulders, but I would definitely shoulder all of this for the outcome and for the next generation of beautiful people. You know, I, you know, I got big, broad, you know, truck shoulders. I sure I can carry a lot more stress than this. I, I'm so. a tiny person, so I need help. Exactly. Dude, I can bench past 200, say less. Let's do it. <laughs> Carrying a lot on your shoulders, I feel like it's not 
that much to carry because there's so much support from everyone that has continued to stick with I'm going to talk and generalize for all of us in our lives and the new friends that we've made here there's there's a lot of weight for sure but it's never too much when you have that group and that family yeah Matt and John really made it easy for us to feel welcomed and everything and even Kelton actually is almost half my age and he kind of helped me kind of come to terms with the fact that I was trans so thank you uh, my name is Maya Estes, uh, she, her, or they, them pronouns. I'm from Portland, Oregon. I'm 19. I just turned 19. Oh, I'm very pansexual. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite the pan. I'm painfully pan. I also feel like with this generation, like in general, we see kids our age on the news all the time speaking on issues with all the school shootings and everyone marching like that was huge for all of us of this age group just see that and see that we can have that voice and that people will listen if we are loud enough like we can make them listen yeah. and we don't have to carry this by ourselves there's so many people there to carry it with us this is abby dees with imru radio and i'm talking with the cast and filmmakers of the new documentary room to grow i'm riley peterson i'm 17 i'm from battleground washington I'm female to male. I don't really know what I identify as. I'm not a people person, so I guess I'll figure it out when I'm older. <laughs> there were a lot of references in the film, people talking about the effect of Trump, but you had the most personal, in this moment, I'm making a decision because of changes. Have I got that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so my whole life plan, I had it planned out my freshman year beginning. I was going to apply to the Air Force Academy my junior year, and that's because I have family members, my mom was in the Air Force, and I always looked up to her and I was like, I just want to serve my country. And I woke up one morning to a tweet, um, and it said, transgender people are not allowed in the military anymore. That was completely devastating, because mm -hmm. I, oh, I don't want to get emotional, but I put so much time and effort into ROTC to just like get ready to like, for my future, I just want to help people. That's what I want to do, and I wanted to follow after the people that have sacrificed their lives for us, for our freedom. It was really devastating to hear that. We're representing the United States military. Why should I be representing something that doesn't want me? It's really hard, and I still do it, and now I'm in charge of the ROTC at my school. It's really hard because people are looking at me, and they know I'm trans, and they still call me by a female, which I don't really care because I'm confident in myself. I'm really afraid that they're not going to like respect me as a leader because I don't want to be seen as trans, I want to be seen as a leader because in my opinion, I've worked really hard and I'm a pretty strong leader and um, that's how I want to be seen. That flipped my world upside down. You guys are going through this important moment of your life, not just this film, but growing up. This is all happening in the first year, year and a half of the Trump administration. Do you feel that very consciously? Yeah, I feel like for me personally, I like I'm a pretty big minority, so, you know, someone that is Mexican. My dad's from Oaxaca. My mom's from El Salvador. I feel like we're being focused on a lot within this past year and a half uh, with me being so openly, I mean, I can't hide the fact that I'm Mexican, but being trans, which has also been very taboo, even targeted. still now, and very targeted now, and then being of someone that's from the Mexican community, I feel like there's a really big spotlight and obligation for me to speak up. Mm -hmm. There aren't many other people like me at least i don't know if there's i don't know from your experience but i know that you and i have talked about our struggles being like some of the only people of color slash pocs of not only like our choir but of 
Portland and other Oregon, really. Yeah, mm -hmm. I definitely feel how underrepresented people of color are in the LGBT community, and it's really a shame because there's still so many of us out there, and it's just the fact that people of color aren't coming out because their communities, whether they're like Hispanic or, or African American or Asian American or whatever, they don't accept LGBTQ people. It is hurting the LGBT community because uh, what's being represented is cis white gay males. That's n not the whole community. That's just a fraction. Yeah. But that's all we're seeing. And our brothers and sisters or siblings of like the, you know, our people of color in the LGBT community, I think we make up actually a pretty big chunk of the community. If not, I want to say the majority. Or people pick and choose parts of Maya and I's culture all the time. You talked about that very much. You said you just wanted to be a black queer woman yeah. and not have to pick. Yes, absolutely. For some reason, this hit me is your grandmother saying to you, because you are also of Japanese heritage, and your grandmother saying, maybe she'll find a Japanese woman. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. I was so surprised that she, she said girlfriend before she said boyfriend. It, like, it shocked me a little bit, but really? I really liked it, and I liked that they captured that moment. Your grandma's a real one. I like that. She's yeah. like a real one. Do you think you know more than most of the adults in your life about this stuff, at least? Maybe. You can say yes. It's okay. Yes. We think you do. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's different because kids usually don't talk about this stuff like mm -hmm. when they're like eating dinner or something. Usually adults talk about this, but kids don't have the chance to talk about this. Maya? I think they just miss us all the time because we're so young, but we've had experiences that we've had heartbreak, we've had love, we've felt these emotions even though we're so young and we have opinions about these things that are happening to us because they're happening to us as well not just the older generations so well, they could learn a little patience and to listen to us for once the laws and all that stuff that the older generations are doing that's my said it's affecting us but also we can't do anything about it because we as minors and minorities don't have that big of a voice but the good thing recently is that we're getting so much more of a voice and to teach older generation something, hey, respect your kids because they're the ones taking care of you in retirement homes. <laughs> <laughs> Call me she or get put in a home. <laughs> you heard me. <laughs> I'm here with John Garcia and Matt Alber co-producers and co-directors of Room to Grow. Could you talk a little bit about the genesis of this film? Matt here. I started hanging out with this amazing queer youth chorus in Portland called Bridging Voices, and they inspired the project. We did a performance together at a conference um, where we all got to sing together, and I got to a glimpse of them and the family that they create with each other, and it just became the embers for the fire that became Room to Grow. And John, you should take it from here. We really didn't have a specific trajectory or outline for this project. We didn't plan. We simply, we showed up and they spoke to us and we captured it. What do you want people to take away from this film? We want them to be seen. We want, we, we want parents to see this and kids to see this. We want kids to see themselves in this. We want parents to be able to see how other parents are navigating through providing the, you know, the best and safest environment for, for their teenagers. Yeah, for me, I see a world of adults that like to argue, and uh, the solution I see in front of me are 
all of the young people who are brave enough to tell their stories. So we made room to grow to give a microphone and a camera and a lens to the people that have the answers. Our hope is that it will ripple through the world and families can sit and watch this together, understand each other better, and that the world will start to realize their incredible value. Because as queer people, we have like this amazing opportunity because we reach into all classes, all races, all continents. We are an incredible glue. And if we could just stick together and stand up together, we might be able to fix everything. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank, Thank you. you. Awesome. This is Abby Dees with IMRU Radio, and I've been talking with the cast and filmmakers of the new documentary, Room to Grow. Room to Grow looks at the lives of LGBTQ and beyond young people as they look ahead. You can watch Room to Grow at reverie.tv. That's R-E-V-R-Y dot TV. Those kids taught me so much. And every time I meet young kids who are breaking breaking the rules from right. what I remember them, I always like tell myself, they're your teachers, they're your teachers. Right. We have something to offer them, but boy, do they have a lot to offer us. I know, and that's something you only learn as you get older. You really, you really can learn from children. Yeah. I, yeah. Don't, I don't like to admit it all the time. But keep learning from them. Yes. Keep well, learning. just keep learning in general. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other conversation, <laughs> Wenzel. So that's it for tonight, though. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, plus Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and podcast distribution manager, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. As we mentioned, Jackie Shane, a black trans woman soul singer who packed nightclubs in 1960s Toronto before she stepped out of the spotlight for decades, only to reemerge with a Grammy-nominated record in her 70s, has died. She was 78. So we close tonight's show with her rendition of a song that reminds us of our constant fun drive refrain here at KPFK. It's called Money, That's What I Want. Good Good night. night.